Good morning. Obera aloha. That's uh, what we say when we say hello to each other where I come from. So now you're guessing where the heck is she coming from with this strange accent, right? Well, I am a German that married a Kiwi and now we're living in Hawaii of all places. We're suffering for the Lord every day of our lives in a very beautiful place, but a very remote place in this world. Um, Hawaii is the most remote island group in the world. We fly five hours just to get to the mainland, just to be able to go somewhere and do something. So I'm very excited to be here. We are in New Zealand as a whole family for four weeks. Paul is speaking um, in Auckland and around Auckland today. The kids are on the grandparents' farm and hopefully doing well, looking at the cows and wondering how the animal world really, uh, you know, works. And um, I just want to, I brought a few pictures so that I can show you how they are developing because they are growing over the years. So I have, I should have, yeah, here we go. A family picture. Oh, very strong colors, but yeah, that's who we are. So it's Paul and uh, three children who we went to a wedding this year, and that's when we dressed up like this. And so that's us, three kids. Um, Paul, my husband, is a very special man. Uh, I mean, many people would say that about their husbands, most probably. But what I really uh, admire about him is that he loves the Word of God like nothing else. And he has spent this last few years memorizing the New Testament. Not that he is finished, but he's in the middle of memorizing whole books of the New Testament. And it's amazing to watch him and see how the Word of God changes him from the inside out. It's beautiful. And it's a system that anyone can um, memorize. Uh, he ran a school at the beginning of the year, and every single member was able in three months to memorize a 90-minute long gospel uh, and was able to present it. And the challenging thing is that the youngest one was 14 years of age. So no one of us can say, I can't do it, I can't memorize, my brain is too, whatever. Um, it is possible. And it's the method, but it's also because he does it in a way that the Bible becomes alive in us. And it's not just reading, it's not just, you know, not thinking about who were these characters, but being part of what happened there. And it's really powerful. So that's Paul. Then we have Levi. He's uh, eight now. He's our more um, sensitive kid that uh, hears and feels a lot of things, uh, is, you know, very close to God. And the way he hears God, I'm so jealous uh, because he doesn't have all these filters built in that I have. Um, very fun. And he learns Korean as a first language, well, as a second language after English, because he goes to school in Kona and, you know, we have lots of Asians in our culture and so he learns Korean. And it's going to be funny when all the kids speak Korean because then we can't understand the word. And it's such a different language. I have given up trying to learn it. We have our girl. Uh, she's called Elisa. And that is a very typical picture of her. She's our little princess. And funny enough, she's the first girl in four generations in my husband's family line. She broke the line. Um, and she is her world is pink and purple and glitter and gold and everything that I don't need in life. That's what she has. Um, by the end of last year, God challenged us uh, in a prayer time to involve our kids more into our ministry. And so in January, I took Elisa to her first outreach to Uganda. And here we were in an um, orphanage with over 200 kids. Her first experience uh, was quite overwhelming. 200 kids touching her. 
and looking at her hair and her white skin, and at the end of the day, she was black, really covered with dirt from all the hands that had touched her. Very uh, privileged uh, experience for me as a mum. I want to encourage all the families that are here, if God challenges you to take your kids on a mission trip, a short-term mission trip, you will be blown away how God can use your kids and how he will open doors for you that you can never open yourselves. And it will mark their lives forever. They will get an understanding about the privilege they have to be born and growing, being able to grow up in a country like this, where you have freedom, where you have education, where you have wealth, where you have so many things that other people don't have. And then we have our little one, Gabriel Joy. It's our little uh, warrior, stubborn warrior, um, a very willful kid. Gabriel means the mighty man, uh, the mighty one of God. And so we gave her that name without really knowing what the implication could be. <laughs> so now we have the mighty one of God in our family. And it's a good challenge to lead a strong-willed kid into the destiny and calling. By trade, I'm a photographer, always been, 13 years of working professionally in Germany. Then Paul kidnapped me from Germany. And for the last 16 years, I can't believe it's been 16 years, um, I've been in use of the mission. It's an international uh, missions organization all over the world. We have about 22,000 full-time workers all in every country of the world. And uh, the biggest of all campuses and universities of use of the mission is in Kona, Hawaii. That's the only reason why we're there. I wanted to move to Kabul, and God said Kona. And I said, no, it's Kabul. And he said, no, it's Kona. And I didn't really want to move to Kona because I wanted to be right in the center of where things are happening. But God called us about 10 years ago to move there. And we thought, one year, we can do this. And it's 10 years later, we're still there. We're both in the leadership of the base. We're about a 1,000 people there now. And we're training people for missions. And it's our great joy to see more and more Chinese coming to us every quarter, more and more Asians coming to us, being trained for world missions. And, I, you know, we look at the Western world, and sometimes it's a bit discouraging what we see in our countries, but I tell you one thing, God is moving powerfully. In the Asian and South American world, it is a joy to see those young people being on fire for Jesus and carrying the gospel to any place in the world. They have many more accesses than we do, um, you know, in places where we as white people can't go, they can just slip in. And we had some Koreans worshipping Jesus at the great mosque in Saudi Arabia, where it's not allowed for any non-Muslim to even go close to. And they made it into the very holy of holies, and they praised Jesus at the core of where Islam worships, you know, Allah. So it's fun to see how God is using all nations to reach all nations. And we, um, I think, as Western countries, um, need to open our doors even more for those that want to come and minister to our own people. The Africans have something we don't have. The South Americans have something that we don't have. And we, it's God's purpose to reach all nations through all nations. So let's be open for people from other places to come and worship with us. Um, I'm still on my task to fulfill this call on my life to be a voice for the voiceless to use photography to build bridges between communities that have potential, that can do something, and communities that are suffering. There's a big gap between them, and God has called me for those last 16 years to build these bridges. And it's been amazing to do this. I'm really privileged to see God using a life of someone who is first-generation Christian, uh, comes from a little tiny black forest town, nothing ever big has come out of this, 
and uh, God is just using me to build these bridges and to spread his kingdom. And um, I'm, I'm amazed sitting there thinking about God's faithfulness. To me, I started as a single woman, then I got married, and now we have three kids, and God still provides for us and carries us and leads us and guides us. And if you think about, you know, how where I come from, I would have such a life without any purpose. And God called me out of the dust into a destiny and calling that I would have never dreamed of. And he has this plan for each one of our lives. I want to start with a challenge, or, well, it was just a question that I faced a few months ago. I was in an interview, and they asked me a question, and the, the unfair thing in an interview is that they never give you the answer, uh, the questions beforehand, because they want you to be spontaneous. And it's quite freaking when you stand there and the cameras are running and you have no time to think. And the question they asked me back then was, Susie, what is the gospel for you? And I thought about it. Later on, I went actually on the internet and I thought, what is actually, what are the smart people of the world saying? And uh, they say it's the teachings of Jesus, the gospel is. The gospel is the message concerning Christ, the kingdom of God and salvation. And I like the the last one, a thing that is absolutely true. So that's what the smart people of the world say. I wasn't that smart. I've never seen a university from the inside. So I just thought for an instant, and what came to my mind was a Bible verse, and so I quoted it. I said, for me, the gospel is very practical. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you invited, uh, you visited me. Later on, after the interview, I reflected on what I had answered, and I thought about that question, I thought, hmm, quite a good answer. I was proud of myself. I thought, very practical. The Bible is never wrong. Jesus' words are always powerful, and I was quite happy with how I had answered this question. But the next day, something happened. I reflected again over this answer, and this answer, my own words, started to bother me. I felt very uncomfortable. I felt like challenged by my own words that I had so easily said. And I thought to myself, where am I living this? Where am I feeding the poor? And where am I giving a drink to someone who is hungry? Have I ever closed someone who was naked? Where do I visit the sick and invite the stranger and go in, into a prison? I thought to myself, how can I even get into a prison? Where is the next prison? And can I get in there without committing a crime? I had no clue. I didn't know. And over these next days, and it's still not over, I was challenged to the core of who I am about those words that I had so easily given. Where am I living this as an everyday response to Jesus, to my faith? Is this... Something, how, what I, what am I doing with these words of Jesus, these commandments of Jesus? Am I just simply ignoring them? Am I hoping that someone else would rise up and do, does it? Am I too busy to do it? And I was really challenged because I'm a full-time missionary. You know, I should have this all together, right? I should be someone who is leading others into this direction. And here I felt really, really challenged by my own words. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I realized that I had so 
um, made it difficult for myself to do the simple gospel. I had put all kinds of doctrines and teachings and lectures and songs and prayers, everything around is strategies, but I had forgotten to do the, the one thing, which is living it out. I had forgotten to live out those simple words of Jesus. And I got so uneasy about my life, about my faith. I was challenged. And I thought, well, I better find out where this whole thing is written. Where is, Where are these words? And so I found them in Matthew 25, and I looked at the context. And it's Jesus talking to his disciples, telling them that he is going to come back one day with his angel, and he's going to sit on a glorious throne, and all the nations will be in front of him, and he's going to divide them into the sheep and the goats. Don't ask me why sheep and goats, but that's what he says. And there will be people standing on his right hand, and he will invite them into his kingdom and will more or less say, well done. You have fulfilled what I have asked you to do. Come and receive your inheritance. And then he will turn to those on the left hand and he will say the following to them. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me. I needed clothes and you did not close me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or need clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I mean, these are serious words. And I was shocked by how they hit me. I mean, Jesus is very black and white here. There is not much grace here in the middle. And we don't like this in our world today. You know, we like the gray, gray places, but it's very black and white. And it's very serious. These consequences are horrific for all of us. And what shocked me the most, that those who were standing at the wrong side thought they were standing on the right side. They were not even aware that they had neglected something that was of uttermost importance to Jesus. They thought they had done the right thing, but they didn't. And I realized it's not really important how we feel about how we live this life. How we have put our own doctrines and our own face together so it fits us. And we like doing this. But the standard of all standards is and, and will always be Jesus. He's the plumb line. Whatever he says is what we should you know, focus on, not what we have put together so that it would fit us in our plans and in how we are and who we are. And so I was wondering, why is Jesus so harsh, so unkind, so black and white in this passage? And I believe that there is a special place in God's heart for those who suffer, for those who are neglected, who are at the margins of our societies, who are the forgotten ones, in my words, the voiceless ones. He has never given up on them. Even if the whole world does not take care of them, if they neglect them, they don't even notice them, they have a special part in God's heart. 
In the next chapter, in Matthew 26, Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. And that shouldn't frustrate us. And many people have then said, so well, then we don't need to do anything because we can't change it anyway. The poor will always be there no matter how much money and effort we put into the poor. That was not the intention why Jesus said that. I believe the poor will always be with us so that we as Christians will always have a chance to express the love of God to people. That none of us will ever be jobless or too old in pension. There is no pension in the kingdom of God. So that God can use our lives again and again to express himself to people who don't know him. That's why I believe we have the poor with us. It's a great chance, a great honor that God would use us, but also a great responsibility. But God wouldn't give us a task that is impossible for us to live out. He wouldn't give us this task to do these things if he wouldn't have planted everything in us to be able to do it. And it's not that all of us need to look at all of them, but I think there could be one or the other thing that each one of us could do to see this word fulfilled in our world today. I believe we carry the solutions of the problems of our world in us today. God has placed them in us, and it's our challenge now to think about ways how we can confront the challenges of our world today. And we simply need to start putting legs to our prayers. So much easier, and we do this in Vyram a lot, 24-hour prayers. You know, we stay up all night and do it, and it's a, it's a really good thing to do. But unless we put legs to our prayers, not one person in this world that suffers will ever realize that we have met for a 24-hour prayer. And so, yes, we support those who are out there, but it's also our task to reach our Samaria, our Jerusalem, the surrounding that God has given us, and to make a difference where God has put us. So let's look a little bit at the people that Jesus is mentioning here, the list of people that he feels are important for us to focus on. So the first ones are the hungry, people who are hungry in our world today. There are about a billion people who are hungry in our world, who are malnourished, and uh, you meet them whenever you leave the safe shores of the Western world. This lady was in a refugee camp in Afghanistan. She was way under 40 kilograms, and she was too weak to even get up. Six six million children die every year of hunger. Even though we have enough food for feeding 12 billion people in our world today, that's according to the United Nations' latest numbers. 12 billion people could eat, and yet we have a billion people that are hungry. And this is very much related to greed and to an unfair distribution of food. I met these two girls a few years ago in Swaziland, uh, in South Africa. They are both AIDS orphans. They uh, were AIDS orphans at the age of 12 and 15 when both of their parents died. And they were left to themselves. There were no grandparents or mothers or uh, aunties or uncles that would take care of them. And these are two kids or two now teenagers that live under $2 a day. They had a fridge without any food in it. They had no running water. They had no electricity. And when we sat down for our first breakfast that I had bought, the the one on the uh, right for you, Pinky said, ah, this feels like Christmas. And I felt really cold that morning. I didn't know that South Africa was so cold. And I said, yeah, it's quite chilly. And she said it again, it feels like Christmas. 
And I said, what do you mean it feels like Christmas? And she said to me, we have something to eat. And I said, what do you normally have for breakfast? I still didn't get this. And she said, we never have breakfast. We are lucky if we have one food, one meal a day. These are the hungry people of our world today. So what can we do? What is Jesus challenging us to do? He says, you go and feed them. Give them something to eat. Very simple words. So how can we do this? Well, if you're a farmer, you might have some ideas about agricultural stuff that you could take into another country uh, on a short-term mission and teach people how to treat the soil so that they could have better crops. You might be a justice-oriented person. You might be able to get involved so and, and, and fight for the fair distribution of food. That's a big, huge issue. You might first have to become a lawyer to be able to do this or get another education, but maybe that, that could be something that could drive you. You know, really fight for a fair contribution. You might be a banker, a money person. Maybe you could start something with microcredits, an amazing thing that people have, have done in this world where they give little amounts of money to a person so that they can start a sustainable living. They can buy a sewing machine and they can start a business and over a period of time they can pay back the money that they were given at the beginning and can make their own money. Amazing thing. Maybe you're a teacher. You could educate the poor in the world. One of the most powerful ways and effective ways to get people out of poverty is teaching them just normal stuff. Because once you are illiterate, once you don't know about your rights, about your possibilities, you have no future. There are other people that are hungry in our world today. These are the unreached people groups of our world. Still, there are about 72 million people who have never once heard about Jesus. There's no radio program that they could listen to in their language, no Bible translated into their tribal language most of the time, no church in a walking distance where they could go, so they are unreached. Well, one of my first experiences in missions was in, in the high up in the Himalayas where we gathered with a group of people that had never seen white people, and I asked him, have you ever heard about Jesus? And they said no. And I said to the translator, maybe they say it a bit differently. You know, they pronounce Jesus in different ways. And he tried all kinds of stuff, and they said, no, we have no idea what it is. And I paused, and I had an idea, and I said, have you ever heard about Coca-Cola? And they started to smile. Their eyes got big, and they asked me, did you bring some? Isn't that that drink in that red and white bottle? And they were so excited about an unhealthy drink that is a bit more than a 100 years old. And they had never heard in 2,000 years about the saving power of Jesus Christ. That was the moment when God broke my heart and called me into missions. Because I thought, it's not right that people know about an, about an unhealthy drink. And that some advertising guys in Coca-Cola have done a better job than we Christians in 2,000 years. So 72 million people are still without a witness of Jesus. They need to have someone who would be brave enough to go to their place and tell them about a real relationship with Jesus. That's one of them. So who will bring food to those who are hungry? Who will bring Bibles and, and a, a living face to those who have never heard? Who will find solutions for, for the limitation of educations for all the poor in our world? God is challenging us, you feed them. The next people 
Jesus mentions here are the thirsty. Again, one in eight people have no clean water in our world today. Unbelievable. I mean, that's unnecessary. 80% of all illnesses in the developing world are related to dirty water or poor sanitation. One out of every five deaths of children under five is due to unclean water. I was in Africa and uh, I did some research and I found out that average woman in Africa spends about three hours every day to carry water for the family so that they would have water to drink. And I was in Ethiopia and I saw people, women, I walked with them for two hours to a dried up uh, riverbed that they had to dig for about half a meter and they got this dirty brown water. It was the only drinking water they had. And you can imagine the results of that. And what is Jesus challenging us to do? He says, you give them something to drink. So how can we do this? Maybe you have some strong arms. You could dig some wells. That could be a solution for a whole village. We have a project in Togo that we just started where you can dig a well for people, for a community, to give a whole community clean water. And I once did this in Ethiopia, and I tell you one thing, we never talked about Jesus until they had their clean water. And then they came up to us and said, why are you doing this? We cannot give you anything, but why did you come to do this for us? And I tell you one thing, the cards were open. We didn't even have to do a big deal about Jesus. They were just receiving him as the living water into their hearts as they received the literal uh, living water or, or clean water into their lives. And it was so easy to talk to them about Jesus. Maybe you are a water freak. You are someone who could invent um, ways how we can clean water. There's a whole lot of solo stuff. There are filters that, are, um, that have been developed. Uh, you could maybe install a cleaning system to people. Maybe you are more creative in your mind. You could develop new technologies that are cheaper that people in poor countries could use. Maybe you could come up with ways how they could catch the rainwater and preserve it over a period of time so that they would have water. Maybe you're a teacher, you could educate on, on, on hygiene because that's how people get sick because they have no clue about hygiene. Maybe you're a nurse and you could look after the sick and the dying in those countries. God wants to use our talents and gifts to see those things changed. So who will go and give clean water to people? Who will co-create with God new technologies so that not only the rich countries can have clean water, but also the poor countries? Jesus says, you give them something to drink. The next ones that I mentioned are the strangers. And there's something phenomenal that has happened, especially the last maybe 30 years in our Western countries. We had a whole lot of refugees coming into our nations. God brings them right to our doorsteps, 15 million refugees all around the world that have left or lost their home countries for for the sake of a better life for themselves and their children. And God has brought them right to our doorstep from all over the world. And some of of them look really different from us. And I was so shocked one day when I talked to someone that looked like this And I figured out he looked like a Muslim. He felt like a Muslim. He came from a Muslim nation. And yet, you know why he had come to my home country? Because he was a persecuted Christian in his home place. 
He looked like a Muslim. He smelled like a Muslim. And yet he was a Christian in his heart. And he had to leave his country because of danger of being killed. His whole family was in danger to be killed. And he came to to my country to find refuge. God brings them right to our doors. But, of course, we are afraid. We have all kinds of ideas about them. There's fear in us. There's a whole lot of unknown things about them. And so often, they live in their communities. Their communities are at a certain place in our towns. And not many people interact with them. It's challenging to move to another country. When I moved to America, I was so challenged, even though it's a Western country. But, you know, you go shopping and you have 10 different types of rice and you don't really know which which rice should I buy. I have no clue what is in which package because there's no window on it that you could see the rice. And I realized how hard it was even to just move from a Western country to another Western country. Now, Now think about the implications if you can't read the language. If you have never seen a supermarket the way we have them, what are you going to do? On top of all those strangers are over 150 million orphans all around the world, kids that have no parents, that are longing for a place where they belong. They're in need of love, of unlimited love of people that love Jesus and that can hand down this love to those children. What can we do? Well, if you're the mama type of a person, you could just simply invite a stranger for a meal, for a cup of tea, for an afternoon tea, for a church meeting, for something like we did last yesterday afternoon. Just allow them to come into your private space, into the pri- privacy of your church. If you are a shopping person, if you like shopping, you could maybe just approach them refugees and ask, do you want me to go shopping with you? Can I help you find your ways around? If you're a linguist, maybe you could teach language to them so that they have a chance to survive in your country. If you love kids, what a great thing it would be to start a home work program for these children where the parents can't do anything for them because they can't understand the language, they can't read the stuff, and the kids have such a bad start into their lives if there's no one who helps them. What, how would it be if we would open our church doors for afternoon programs for these children? And then the most challenging thing may be, who will adopt those children, even here in New Zealand, that have no home? The mandate of Jesus was never given to the government. It was given to the church to look after the orphans and the widows. We might not be able to take care of 150 million orphans, but maybe there's place in our hearts, in our lives, in our families for one or two. So who will sacrifice their personal privacy in order to invite a stranger into our lives, to our church programs, into, yeah, into a friendship, into a relationship? The next ones are the naked that Jesus is talking about. One in seven people today live in a slum. And some of them are not properly dressed because they just simply don't have enough money. But in our world today, we have an increasing number of naked people that have a different kind of nakedness. These are the over 10 million children in the Brussels of our world today. Those who are stripped of their dignity, of their value, marked down to prices that someone can sell them for nothing, in order to have pleasure. 
and they have been robbed. They are naked in other ways. I have been to India several times and I have seen the brothels where they have caged, well, they have windows that are, that have bars, a, a, a door where there is a guard in front. And I asked, why is this a different house in this whole red light area? And they told me this is the place where they, where they keep the kids. And they chain them to the bed so that they cannot run away. And they make bars in front of the window so that they cannot quit, uh, commit suicide and jump out of the windows. And there are bars on the door, uh, guards on the doors. So if anyone ever gets, gets loose and could run away, that there's someone would, who would hold them back. And as long as we have poverty in this world, we will have these problems. They are robbed of their dignity and value and are naked in a modern way. Who will stand against this injustice? Who is someone more entrepreneurial that could create job opportunities for people who are caught in this slavery and can't get out because they have no ways to survive? Who are the lawyers that would free those children because almost every country has a law against child prostitution, but it's not enforced? So who would go into the countries and challenge the politicians and the police to actually enforce their laws? Who is a builder that could build a shelter for the kids who are rescued? And who has a big heart for children that would take them and love on them and create a home? Even here in New Zealand, I'm not just talking about other parts of the world. So who will fight against this injustice and who will close the naked? The next one I was really relieved when I thought about that one. I thought, I mean, okay, that's an easier one. The sick. Most probably at any given time we know someone who is sick. And of course there are hospitals in our countries, there are old folk homes, there are always sick people around us. This, the most, amongst the ten most deadliest sicknesses in our world is malaria, HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis. All of these three countries are curable, but only for those who have money. The poor in the world will die of these sicknesses, even though you don't have to die. They all can be either stopped or be cured. 34 million people suffer today of HIV, AIDS. And if a mother carries a baby and she gets the right medication, the kid can be born without HIV. But if she doesn't get the medication in while she's pregnant, the kid will be born with HIV AIDS. There are amazing things that have happened, discoveries over the last 10 years, but none of the poor has access to this. I had a, a friend in Germany. She starved herself to death. That's a modern-day sickness. 25 million people suffer, especially in the Western world, of eating disorders. So they either don't eat or they eat and then they throw up again. They have a strange relationship to food. 25 million people. And this friend of mine came from a rich background, from a rich home. And she believed she was too big and she could not see herself for who she really was. And one day her parents walked into her flat and there she was dead. And on her Death certificates stood starved to death in a country like Germany where no one needs to be hungry. There's another sickness that we have in our, you know, there's all kinds of new sicknesses that we have in our country. We had a team, uh, a team from our discipleship training course going to Argentina over Christmas time last year. And on 
New Year's Eve, they felt God was challenging to go to an AIDS ward where they could visit people that are at their last stages of life. And that very good New Year's um, Eve night, eight people gave their lives to Jesus. They said it was so easy. They were all young people. And, you know, they are not the, you know, they were not the brave ones to share the gospel. Uh, there was a language barrier and yet eight people that night came to Christ. They said they were so desperate for any hope. They wouldn't, didn't want to die because they were so afraid of death. And when we talked to them about a hope, about Jesus, about the power of, of his resurrection, they turned to Christ like this. No one will stop us to go into a hospital and ask people, can I pray for you? To go into an old folk home and visit, visit old people, say, can I tell you about Jesus? We live in a free nation where we can do this. So who will visit the old folks' homes of Wellington and the hospitals in Wellington to meet those people that are desperate for hope and eternity? Who will get education in medical areas so that we can find new cures for the sicknesses of our days? Who is smart and is ready to discover something that has never been discovered to um, find new ways of treating people that um, have sicknesses that we didn't know 10 years ago. I believe God is right there to release those ideas to us if we're willing to say, hey, come on, Lord, this world needs a solution for this problem. Would you release it to me so that I could release it to this world? And not based on greed and, you know, getting famous, but based on really want to help someone. Who is going to fight for the distribution of medication? There's such a lobby in the pharma industry that holds back so much that would save so many lives. Who will fight for this? So Jesus says to us, you go and visit them. Look after them, whatever that means. And the last ones he mentions are the prisoners. And this was a hard one for me because I have never had connections to people from prisons. I have never been involved in prison ministries. But what I have realized since then, since I started this journey, that most of the people that are in prison are not there because of one act of, of thing that they have done. It's most of the time a chain of events in their lives that have brought them to a place where they finally committed a crime. Things like uh, broken homes, um, unwanted from the beginning, abuse, addictions, a wrong set of friends. Those things have brought them to a place where they finally committed a crime. And I think uh, prisoners are more open than we are aware um, to listen and hear about a new chance in life, about a white sheet that they can start all over again that Jesus would want to give them. But there are also other prisoners, and we hear more and more about them. 158 million child slaves that work 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week without any holidays. They do jobs so that we can buy cheap, cheap um, coffee or cheap chocolate or that we can get t-shirts for five bucks um, and they are doing the job and they don't earn any money. There are the 250,000 child soldiers that are forced to kill their own fathers and mothers 
and harden their hearts so that their hearts would be hardened. And they would fight a fight that has no purpose, really. They don't even know why they fight for. So what could we do? Maybe you're a friendship evangelist. There's a chance to make, to get into a relationship with people in prison. You could write them um, emails, write them letters. You could become a friend to a prisoner. Maybe you're more the justice person. And you could start a campaign making us think about what do we buy and where does it come from? Do we care if a child slave was involved in making this close? There's a whole movement in forcing companies to get more um, open about where their products come from and how they are made. And it's not that when you buy a brand that you're safe. Unfortunately, unfortunately it's not like this. But who would fight for this? Who would start a campaign, even on the Internet, to make us all alert about the issue of so, uh, child, um, child slaves so that we can actually choose where and what we're going to buy in the future. Who will give people a second chance in prison? Who will set the captives free? Just looking at this list of people, there are unlimited opportunities for each one of us to get involved. Jesus didn't give us a task that is impossible, but he also equips us with everything we need to be able to fulfill whatever he has called us to do. He left, Jesus left a real mark on this earth. I have wondered what would have happened if he would have only talked about all of this, if he wouldn't have lifted out. Would we still talk so much about him? He was the one who would break any taboos in, in the culture. He was touching the leopards and talking to the women and doing things that no one else would do. And maybe it takes a bit more courage from our side to break through some of the traditions or stigmas that we have in our country, countries in order to see the gospel get legs, see the, the gospel fulfilled in our everyday walk with Jesus. He lived the good news. And I believe this is one major reason why we still talk so much about Jesus and why, why he is still winning in this world today, 2,000 years later. He wants us to become people that walk it out more than we have ever done it before. A powerful verse that will affirm our anointing for this task is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on us, on you and on me, because the Lord has anointed us to preach good news to the poor. It's not any kind of spirit that is upon us. It's the Holy Spirit the most creative being in this universe, the one who teaches us, that draws us to Jesus, that does so many things in our lives. Without him, we couldn't say, Abba, Father. That Holy Spirit is in us. That's a fact. The moment you receive Jesus into your life, you got the Holy Spirit. No matter what kind of implications that has. You know, we have the more charismatic churches, they say certain things. We have the more traditional churches, they say certain things. But fact is that without the Holy Spirit, you could not have said, Abba, Father. So you have the Holy Spirit. That's a fact. And it says you are anointed. You don't have to wait for the moment that God will do it. You don't need a Bible school before you're anointed. You don't need to read through the whole Bible. All these things are very good. Don't get me wrong. But you don't have to wait for the anointing to come on you. You know what? How you can realize that you have an anointing in the most 
the easiest way, the easiest way to realize that you have an anointing is when you step out by faith and you trust that God would be with you. And when you do that, then the anointing will flow through you. So we, we have the Holy Spirit. We are anointed for what? It says it really simply to proclaim the good news to the poor. That's the heart of the gospel. That's our task. That's as simple as it is. To preach the good news to the poor. I believe, as it is for me, and I'm still in the middle of this, it is a good reminder for us this morning, but also a a challenge and maybe even a, a bit of a kick from God to go back to the very roots of what it means to be a Christian. To live out the gospel. And not to wait until a helpless stranger approaches us, until someone of our family goes to prison, until um, we see a beggar and we can't pass by anymore because they are right in our face, until someone in our family dies so that we would adopt the orphan of our family members. I think God wants us to be more proactive in this. Not just sit around and wait for the opportunities that might come. Jesus said, go. That means we have to move. And for the longest as a church, we have been waiting for the people to come to us. I love the candlelight dinner. That's exactly what it means. We have to go and invite people to to where they are. You know, the times are over where you can do big, huge crusades and fill stadiums with it. We have to go. And it might be just across the road to our neighbor. It might be into the city. It might be to other cities in New Zealand. It might be to the ends of the world. But we have to reach out to the people. Last year, I, wanna, I, I was in Nigeria. And I went there for another purpose. But at the Wawan base, at the base of use of the mission, I, I saw all these young people. And one of them was this young guy, George. He was so sparky and he had a, such a beautiful smile. I was attracted to him right away. I thought, man, he's a fun guy. And on top of all of this, he always wore a red trouser. I don't know if he only has a red trouser, but he always wore red trousers, shiny red trousers. And we had talked a little bit. He always carried a big black box with him, and I didn't really ever bother thinking about what it was. But one day I saw him reading in that black book. It was his Bible. And he just read like my back then seven-year-old son, word for word with his finger under every word that he was reading. And I looked at him and I thought, hmm, there must be a story behind this. He's in his early 20s. He's reading like a like a beginner. So what's happening? So I went over to him and I said, hey, church, come on, t- tell me a bit, a bit about your life. What's your story? I didn't say anything about his reading. And I was not prepared what I heard. I have heard a whole lot of stuff in my life, but this topped everything. I am not um, over making an overstatement if I say you're looking into the eyes of a mass murderer. He has killed more people than he could count. What happened? In the late 50s, they found oil in the southern part of Nigeria. The oil industry moved in. A few Nigerians got really rich. The oil industry got rich. And the average people got really, really poor. 
They destroyed their fishing abilities because oil was everywhere and still is. Uh, the coastline is black. A lot of oil there. Uh, their fields were polluted with oil so they couldn't have a crop anymore. And the people got poorer and poorer. Some young people got up in the 60s and said, this is it. We're going to fight for this. They had no weapons. They had no power. They had no money. But one of them remembered that there was black magic. And so they gave their souls to the devil and they started to fight. And ever since then, this fight is on. Thousands and ten thousands of young people have entered into this child soldier, um, whatever, environment. And um, George told me that the place where he comes from, there is no child that does not belong to one or the other militant group that is fighting for something. They don't even know what they are fighting for anymore. And what it means, you have to, in order to get gain strength, you have to drink the blood of people. That will protect you and that will make you powerful. And so, people, young people are killing. They are leaving their parents by the age of nine. They are normally away from their parents, living in the bush, in the jungle, and they are killing and kidnapping people and eating their flesh and drinking their blood. In 2009, the situation got out of hand. It was so bad. The government had tried so many things. They, they only felt they had one thing they could do. So they released the amnesty to all of these young people and said, if you come out of the jungle, you don't, uh, you get a new life. We will not put you into prison. You give us your weapons and you will get some money and we'll be able to start a new life. George didn't take this opportunity, but some of his friends did. They went into a, it was like a, a refugee camp where they gathered all of them and they tried all kinds of things to help them back into normal life and nothing worked. At the same time, the leader of Youth of the Mission in Nigeria, one morning sat over his Bible in his quiet time and he felt God speaking to him, go and start a discipleship training course in one of these camps. And he's like, is that really you, Lord? He was so not keen to do this. And he had all these arguments why it was impossible. And he didn't want to do it, but he couldn't get rid of this thought. So finally, a few days later, he picked up the phone, he called a few people and Sure enough, the doors were wide open for him to come and do a training program for young people. And the discipleship training course that they ran in that camps became the most powerful, really only way to get people out of this life of violence into a new future. Because there's no way, if you don't turn someone inside out, if you don't have an inside change, that your actions will ever change. Too much has happened to these young people. And it was not without a whole lot of hurdles on danger to do this, but they started this DTS. And some of George's best friends became Christians in that first wave of, of people converting to Christ. One day, God just put it on their hearts to find George, and they found him in a nightclub of all places. And they, they started to put him in a corner, and they talked to him about Jesus. He said to me, I thought they were all brainwashed. They were all, you know... That something had happened to them. They, they, were not, they were out of their minds. And he said, after a while, I, I, I threatened them. I said, if you don't stop, I'm going to kill you. And they know that he was able to do that. So they stopped it. But he said, that night, he couldn't sleep. He couldn't sleep most of the nights. But that night, the words that they were telling him were just echoing in his heart. He said, I had a soft spot in my heart I didn't even know. And he didn't know what to do with this. 
The next night he was involved in a fight. Every night he was involved in a fight, but it was a severe fight. And for the first time in all these years, he could not fight back. He said, it felt like the power had left me. And he started to weep. And he called his friends. They had left their phone number with him. And he called his friends and they said, come, come and visit us. The next day he, he robbed someone of a phone so that he could have a ticket for the bus. And he drove the bus to the Wyoming base. And the moment he walked in there, he felt he was in a different world. The first night he slept there, he slept in the first time in years he slept again. He said, Susie, those souls of the people that you have killed, they haunt you and you can't sleep. The next morning, the first really day that he was there, his friends went to class and they said, why don't you come along? He had nothing better to do. He didn't know what it would mean for him. And guess what the topic was that day? It was the Father Heart of God. He had only light memories of his father. Those militant leaders had become their fathers. They would do everything for them. And there was so much violence involved in this. And he heard about the loving father heart of God. And he said, Susie, it took me two hours. I was on my knees. There was a little cross in the corner. I rubbed on my knees to that cross. And I gave my heart to Jesus. And he cried for the rest of the day. He said he, for the first time he realized what he had done. And uh, he said, in an instant, all my addictions were gone. I didn't need drugs. I didn't need women. I didn't need alcohol. I was just healed of all of this in an instant. I could not believe it. I was so amazed because he looked so different. There was nothing that I could trace his his story back, that I could see in his eyes that there was still something left. God had completely healed him. And I said to church, where is this area? And he said, oh, it's not far away, maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes by car. And I'm like, what? So close? And I'm like, we're going to have to go there. And he laughed at me and said, you can't go there. It's too dangerous. And I said, George, there's something I learned in my life. There's no safer place in this world than when we walk in the center of God's will. It's not that nothing can happen to us, but we have perfect peace when we're in those places. And I said, I want to go there. I want to understand how this place looks like. And I had to really, really talk them into coming with me. So at the end were six, uh, me and six militants, ex-militants, big boys, boys and George. They came with me and they put me in the middle of the car so that if someone would open the door, they would have to go through them to get me. They were ready really to lay down their lives for me. I wasn't so aware of this. We came to this area and it looked like one big slum. A lot of injustice there, a lot of Poverty, a lot of, I mean, everything that is wrong in this world is right there. Young people that are too young, you know, to face any of the stuff that they have to face. And when you look into their eyes, you can already tell that they have seen things that they should have never seen. We walked through this slum and I saw how once in a while one of those militants would stand at the corner and just watch my bag. And I thought maybe it's more dangerous than I'm aware of. God has this perfect bubble sometimes around me. We went to a place, uh, to a woman's house, or a shack, um, and uh, she had an amazing story. She was healed of AIDS, and she could prove it. And I said, well, this is a good story. I'd like to um, videotape her so that I can share the story. So we went to her house. Uh, it was a very small room. There were some stairs outside, so I had to stand on the balcony but the stairs came up to film her because the room, the living room was so so little. And as I was filming, someone walked up those stairs and I thought, oh no, 
just kind of walk into my filming here. So I turned around without even thinking and I did like this. Stop. Don't go any further. And shh, be quiet. And I turned around behind my camera, listened to the lady and then I started to think and I'm thinking, are you dumb, Susie? This is just one of those young guys that is most probably a militant. He looked at least really scary. And I told him to stop and I told him to be quiet. How the heck could I do this? And I sat behind my camera and I watched him out of the angle of my eyes, really scared, not knowing what's going to happen next. And he listened to this interview for maybe a minute. He turned around, walked up the stairs. George came right running after him. And when I finished the interview, I looked down and they were talking with, with each other. The guy was on the phone and I thought, oh man, this looks really dodgy. I better get out of here. So I packed my stuff together. I thanked the lady. I was just about to leave the little living room when George came running up really excited and said, Susie, guess what? My friend is here, the one I told you about. The one who said he would become a Christian if I remain a Christian for at least three months. And it has been five months now and I'm still a Christian. And I said, well, great. Have you talked to him about Jesus? And he said, no, I want you to do this. And I'm like, me? And off he went, got out, you know, got the guy, walked into the living room with the guy that I had told off. And he sat opposite on the sofa and really challenging, he looked at me. So, talk to me. And I thought to myself, oh no. No one has ever prepared me for such a moment. You know, I'm not a counselor. I don't know how to deal with people that have traumas. What the heck am I going to ask him? How am I going to talk to him about Jesus? And I was really not, you know, feeling good. And I opened my mouth and the most ridiculous thing came out of my mouth. I'm like, so, are you making good decisions these days in your life? And he looked at me and I'm like, oh no, how could I say this? And he said, hmm. And I said, I guess you're making a lot of bad decisions in your life these days. And he's like, hmm. I'm like, you want to change this? And he said, maybe. It was so awkward. I didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, this is maybe my only chance that I can ever talk to this guy. I better just tell him the gospel. And you know, the gospel is so simple. God made this world. He loves every single being that he created. He wants to have a personal relationship with us here and for all eternity. But as people, we have done so many things all through the history of mankind and we have sinned against and we have have hurt his heart and so finally he chose to give this the best that he had his son one and only son to die for us so that we would have an eternal relationship with him and as i told him this he really listened And after this, he asked me some really good questions. And I realized he had really tracked with me. He understood what I was talking about. So we're going back and forth. And finally, I thought, this isn't taking me anywhere. So I took all my courage together. And it still takes courage, even as a full-time missionary. And I said, do you want to have a change of heart? And he said, yes. And I said, do you want this Jesus to come and live in your heart and change you from the inside out? And he said, Yes, I do. And I was so shocked. I thought it would be so much more difficult to lead a former child soldier or someone who is really aggressive and militant and a killer. 
I thought it would be so much harder to lead them to Jesus. And he just said, yes. And I was so shocked. I didn't know what to do. I turned to George and I said, George, this is your friend. You know how to do this. Now go and pray with him. George was all excited. He put his hand on him. You see the red trousers, I told you. And he was praying a powerful prayer for this guy. I was so proud of this ex-militants that have come to Christ and have total change of heart. And then I, I felt God gave me a prophetic word, so I prayed a prophetic word over him. And then we said, Amen, and we were all excited. And I turned to these ex-militants and I said to them, what are we going to do with this guy? And they looked at me and said, why? And I said, well, he just made a decision for Jesus. He doesn't know what it means to be a Christian. And, you know, we're going to have to teach him. And they looked at each other and out of one mouth came, he needs to do a discipleship training course. Because that was the only thing they knew. They had never seen anything else. So I said, well, the school is already going for three weeks. I'm teaching there. I don't know if we can still bring him. And they said, no problem. That's gonna not going to be a problem. I said, go and call your boss if it's okay. They called the boss. The boss said, bring him. So I turned to this guy again and said, you want to do a discipleship training course so that you would learn how to live? And he looked at me and said, yeah, I'd like to. And I said, do you have any money? And he said, no. I said, no money at all? He said, no money at all. I said, not even a few coins or something? I couldn't imagine. And he said, nothing. And then I said something that I did not filter through my brain. That happens to me quite often. You know, I talk and then I said something. I'm like, oh no, why did I say that? So I finally said, hey, I, I haven't even heard your name. What's, what's your name? And he said, my name is Promise. And I said, promise, I make you a promise. And then I laughed because I thought, how strange does that sound? I said, promise, I promise you, if you want to do a DTS, I will personally pay for this. And then I stopped. And then I thought, and then I said, did I just say that I would pay for his school? And the guys were, yeah, you did. And I'm like, oh, shoot. I said, how much is a school here? And they said, 500 US dollars. And I thought, oh, at least much cheaper than in Kona, Hawaii. <laughs> but I didn't have $500. But I looked at him and I said, you know what? I, what I said, I have said. And I will pay you the DTS, but you have to finish it. And he said, okay. I said, well, then get you back. We're leaving now. And he's like, uh, I can't go now. I have to finish some business. And I said, don't talk to me like this. This sounds really dodgy. And I think you are aware how dangerous your life is. Come with us now. He said, I, I come on Friday. It was Wednesday. I said, tonight I'm teaching in the DTS. You could hear me. Tomorrow I'm leaving the country. He said, I can't. So we left him there. We drove back. While we were still driving, the phone of George rang. And it was promise. He said, I'm on my way. I'm coming. That night I started the DTS. You know, I taught in the DTS. They were not there. Halfway through my message, the door opened up. First came George, then came Promise, and then came another ex-militant. And he listened for two hours to me that night. The next day, someone else was teaching in the morning. And at, at lunchtime, I saw them and I said, Hey, um, are you, do you, how is that new guy that you have there in the class? Is he okay? And he said, Oh gosh, that's a difficult guy. He sits in the front row and asks all these questions. I can't get anywhere with him. And I was so proud of him. Well, Promise ended up doing the school twice. He was a bit rough on the edges, uh, not very obedient. He had never been in a place where there were, was a structure. 
But he has finished his DTS and he's doing a Bible school right now. And I want to show you a picture. So, wait a minute. Let me show you this one. This is before. And this one is after. Just after a simple prayer, he prayed, we walked out, we, we talked about the DTS, we walked out, and at the end of the stairs I said, let me take, tell me tell, uh, let me take another picture of you. I just want to take another picture. And only when I looked at them afterwards, I saw that, look, the change, even just with a simple prayer of commitment to Jesus. I went then home through Germany. I went, uh, when I, on my way home, I stopped in Germany. I was in my mother's place and I laid in my bed because I was jet lagged and I thought, how am I going to pay for this? Lord, how am I going to pay for this school? I really want to be faithful to what I said. And the Lord reminded me that I had over the years collected some birthday monies. I'm coming from a stingy part of Germany. So once in a while someone gives me, you know, my mom or someone gives me money for my birthday and I put it in a, for years I had put it in an envelope. I had totally forgotten about it. And the Lord reminded me of that envelope and I looked through the different, you know, drawers that I have there. And sure enough, I found an envelope and there were about 450 euros in there. That's a bit more than 500 US dollars. And for an instant I stopped and I thought, oh, but God, this is money given to me so that I could do something for myself. You know, you don't have that in mission so much that you can do something for yourself. But at that moment I knew if I would not be willing to give that money that was dear to my heart, I would have no authority to call others to come alongside to help these young people. Well, I'm, I'm amazed to tell you that since I think it's August last year, we were, we are able to give 62 scholarships to these militants. I had to be three months in Germany this year because of my social security and God used that time for me to, to drive 10,000 kilometers through Germany and to speak in different environments, Christian and non-Christian, to talk to people about these militants. And I, I have been able to raise money for 62 scholarships. So it's not necessarily 62 lives because they want to go on and, and get more education so that they can become the evangelists and the Bible teachers and the pastors that they are. And it's been amazing to see how God has taken someone who was a complete hopeless person into someone that he told me he wants to shame the devil. That's all he wants to do in his life. He wants to shame the devil with how he lives his life and how he wins people over for, for Jesus. So I'm telling you this story, A, to make you realize that it is important to talk to people clearly about Jesus, to lead people to Christ, to lead them to the place where they make a decision. And you might not see any results, you might not see any change in their lives, but this is the time where they give their hands to Jesus, and Jesus will be faithful to hold on to their hands. And we don't know who's at the end going to turn their lives around. Maybe it's us, maybe it's someone else. Maybe we might never see the fruit of what we do. But I, I want you to understand it's so important to lay these seeds into the lives of people. Don't hold back when you see that someone is open to pray a prayer of commitment to Jesus because God takes this serious. And also, re I hope that story helps you to realize and, and be reminded that there is no helpless, hopeless case in this world. There's hope for everyone because Jesus is all-powerful. So to end this, I want to challenge you as a whole church. Because God wants to feed the hungry people in this world, in this country, through your church. He wants to give the thirsty people clean water, maybe through your life group and the skills that you have there. 
He wants to meet the refugees and strangers in New Zealand through people of this community. He wants to close people through your generosity. He wants to meet the sick through your job skills, your future career, especially for the young people. You might want to choose a job where you can serve people, where you can tend the sick and lead them to Christ in their last hours of their lives. And God wants to visit and touch prisoners through you. I think the challenge is clear this morning. God wants us to live the gospel, not just to talk about in very practical ways. And each one of us has been given gifts and education and time and resources. And it's us, it's on us to ask the Lord afresh, how do you want to use this? resources and gifts and skills. Maybe for two weeks a year in another country, like what your your group is doing right now in Cambodia. How can you become the hand and feet and mouth of God in a world that is desperately in need and dying because they have no witness about who Jesus is? With God... Nothing is impossible. Do we really believe this? Amen. I'd love for us to... Let's take a moment of silence just to reflect on what God has spoken to us this morning. It's so easy to walk through these doors and go on with life. But I believe that God wants to release some ideas to you as we listen to him some new technologies, some ways how you could make a difference for one person, for a hundred, for a whole community. He wants to give you a calling or affirm your calling or affirm what you're already doing and give you even a, a greater insight in how he would like to see that developed. God is a God not of addition but of multiplication. Whenever we've touched something, we should always think about how can we multiply this, how we can make this big. And so let's take a moment of, of silence and, and ask God, is there something that he would want to tell you right now to respond to this message that he has given us this morning? And then I'm going to pray.